Hey guys, this is Shuma, and you are listening to The Silent Doc. So we're doing something a little bit different today. I'm actually playing for you a recording that was done on Twitter Spaces. In this conversation, we essentially do a COVID-19 update. Now, you're incredibly lucky because the two guests that we have could not be any better. Uh, One of them is Ed Nirenberg, who you've heard before on the podcast. He came on at least a year ago and really gave us an in-depth review of mRNA vaccines, vaccinations, vaccine hesitancy, and really laid a really good foundation for vaccinations in general. My other co-host for the show is Dr. Bahuma. Uh, She is an ID specialist at Emory University, but was speaking on her own behalf for this Twitter Spaces. And we really just got a chance to kick around some really interesting questions in regard to COVID-19. So I hope you enjoy the show. Let's get started. All right. So I think uh, I think we have enough of a quorum. People will probably just roll in when they can. So I think we should get started. So re reintroduction. So my name is Chuma Obineme. Um, I am the host of the podcast, The Silent Doc. Um, thankfully, uh, Ed Nirenberg has been gracious with his time and said he would come back so we could talk more about COVID. Um, this episode is supposed to be really this episode. This you know, this space is really supposed to be sort of an update just because, you know, he came on the show, it may have been almost a year ago, um, right when Pfizer and Moderna had been released. Um, but there have been tons and tons of updates since then. Um, so I'd like to, to touch on some of those uh, and hopefully have a, like a sort of forum discussion about COVID updates, how people are feeling about, you know, this third booster slash shot, um, you know, how people are thinking about um, really everything that's happening in the news with, with COVID. Um, and so I really welcome people sort of to ask their questions or just like raise your hand and I'll see if we can, um, you know, uh, get to you. And if, you know, if it is like a little while before we, we are able to get to you, I would just encourage you to write your question down. I'll do my best to, um, to rope you into discussion because it would be nice to have like a little round robin on some things. Um, so let me see. Uh, okay, so yeah, so some other ground rules. You know, I while I am a practicing physician and you know I was treating COVID pretty intensely um, previously. I'm a GI fellow now, so honestly, most of my patients do not have COVID. Um, and interestingly, my expert is is not a medical professional, but um, he knows a ton about immunology and uh, COVID nineteen. So actually, maybe I should just back off the mic and maybe uh, Ed Nirenberg, do you mind just introducing yourself to, to the audience? Um, sure. So I'm Edward, um, not a physician. Uh, I don't have a PhD, um, either of those things yet. Uh, my background is in immunology and biochemistry, and uh, I've been working on vaccine outreach for the last few years. And then when COVID happened, I kind of pivoted more towards COVID. Um, but I've been doing my best to keep track of all the literature, um, especially regarding COVID vaccines. Excellent, excellent. And then you also have um, a website, right? Deplatform Disease. I don't know if you wanted to mention just a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I try to post there. I mean, I, I haven't been able to do it as frequently as, as I was in the past, but I try to post the like most important updates there um, as they arise. Usually, um, it's to address misinformation because that's been a big thing 
um occasionally it'll be just like purely educational not really responding to any specific claims but yeah excellent yeah yeah which is awesome um yeah it's actually how i kind of stumbled across you in you know period just because i remember i was a I think just seeking more clarification when it came to some immunology questions that I had. And um, I think the level of depth that you go in is, um, is pretty impressive for those who, I don't know, I guess are either in medicine, not in medicine. I think it, um, it's, it's actually really nice reviews on some immunology topics. Um, so I guess before we do a deep dive, um, what have you been doing since we last talked? Um, you know, still kind of the same thing, just like doing more outreach, working with physicians and scientists to communicate the science better, um, working on applications to med school, that kind of thing. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, well, best of luck when it comes med school wise, because uh, it's, uh, it's a beast. Um, so question, I guess just to start things like, um, maybe we should just talk about the Delta variant, and I guess variants in general, um, most of, I guess, the, the lay have sort of heard that, like, this variant is way more infective or, you know, is, it transmits much more. Can you just tell us a little bit about more about, like, the Delta variant and if we expect to see more variants well, soon? Yeah, I mean, um, a variant is basically just um, a copy of the virus that has a few differences in its genetic sequence. And variants that have similar differences in, in their genetic sequences are grouped together in lineages. And that's like what the weird classification was. Like we called it like B117 was the alpha variant, for example, um, that sort of thing. And basically these just happen whenever the virus has an opportunity to replicate, which happens anytime it has an opportunity to cause a productive infection. And um, it's basically the virus is trying to copy its genome and it makes an error in some particular spot. And then from there, what happens is viruses that are quote unquote more fit than other viruses, you know, th those variants, they end up being selected by evolution over less fit variants. So uh, variants like Delta are, um, have a very, very high level of fitness compared to other variants. And we see that because when we look at the sequencing data in the US and basically all over the world at this point, almost all the cases are because of the Delta variant. Um, what is not totally clear right now is whether or not the Delta variant causes more severe disease and um, whether or not it affects children differently. It's thought that um, basically the variant, um, uh, people who are infected with it, it replicates inside their nose so quickly that they shed a lot more of it. Um, there was a really, really excellent report from the um, Chinese CDC that like first characterized it. And it actually led to a little bit of misinformation. The report claimed that um, there was a thousand times more virus in people's noses um, when they had the Delta variant compared to other variants that were from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the report was actually not quite saying that. So um, this was, I think, an important distinction. Uh, the report was using PCR data to make those claims. And basically um, PCR data will tell you how much RNA there is uh, from the virus's genome, but it cannot tell you um, whether or not the virus uh, is infectious. Um, and in particular, coronaviruses make a lot of RNA that is not necessarily um, their entire genome. 
So it's hard to make direct comparisons. Like it's it's very unlikely that people who have the Delta variant are literally making a thousand times more virus at any given instant than people who don't have it. But it is reasonable to assume that they have more. And we have contact tracing studies that are showing basically that the what's called the secondary attack rate, the chance of becoming infected with the variant, the Delta variant is higher, uh, about two and a half times higher than it was for older variants of the virus. So it does definitely seem to spread a lot better. And one potential explanation for that is that it replicates much more quickly and people have higher viral loads and release more virus. Huh. That's very helpful. Um, so I, I posted uh, this quick thread that you had responded to, I think a little bit earlier today about, um, I guess there was, uh, this is Michael Mina, he's expressing frustration. He says, Anyone else frustrated that boosters will be to the original uh, uh, vaccine, as i.e., to, I guess to the um, original form of coronavirus as opposed to the Delta variant? Um, I guess maybe before we tackle that, should we maybe can we just touch on this like third shot or booster that? Yeah, I, I, I think that would be a good pushed. idea. Um, I have yeah, yeah. I have many opinions on this. Um, I don't really see any kind of urgency for a third dose for the vast majority of people. The only hmm. people I think that it really would make sense to get additional doses for would be people who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, people who are pregnant, people who are elderly, people who are immunocompromised, and frontline healthcare workers. Um, and I think for everyone else, uh, it would make much more sense to instead send those vaccines to lower and middle income countries and vaccinate those people. Uh, because this is the whole thing, like variants arise when the virus spreads uncontrolled and basically has an opportunity to replicate uncontrolled. And that is going to happen overwhelmingly in places that cannot really control the, the epidemic. So that's going to be places that don't really have good healthcare infrastructure, don't really have high vaccine uptake, don't really have the ability to impose distancing or masking or that sort of thing. So basically, like, it's a little bit like putting a bandaid on a bullet wound, if you ask me, like, instead of actually tending to the important injury there. Um, the basic, mm. I, I can't quite tell what data they based it on. Um, the HHS made a statement about why they were, um, about how they're going to work to ensure that everyone can get a third dose eight months after their second, basically. Um, and it doesn't cite any specific data. They mentioned briefly that the Delta variant seems to be better at causing infections um, than other variants. And the vaccines seem to be less good at preventing infections over time. And both of those things, we do have data to support that. But a very large study was just done in New York City, published in the CDC's MMWR. And the effectiveness against infection, and this is both symptomatic and asymptomatic infection, was still about 80% by the time that the Delta variant became, became dominant, which is still an excellent number. Um, and at the mm -hmm. end of the day, if it's an asymptomatic infection or if you only have a cold, I don't really think that that really should be the priority for preventing it. And if you actually look, they also looked at hospitalizations and severe cases, and those did not change over time as the Delta variant became dominant. And I honestly, it would not surprise me if for people who got two doses of RNA vaccine, if they were likely protected for life against severe disease and hospitalization. Um, it sounds like this is really a push to uh, prevent any kind of disease of any severity on the part of the government. And I just don't think that that is the right priority right now, um, to be honest. I think the, the exceptions I listed, like for pregnancy, as 
your chance of becoming uh, needing ICU admission or death. And it would additionally help to passively protect the child once they were born because of antibody transfer across the placenta. Uh, for frontline healthcare workers, it's not so much that there are a ton of breakthrough cases with them. They are happening, but they're mostly happening when they're outside of the workplace and they aren't really wearing their PPE properly. Uh, within hospitals, we're not really seeing so-called nosocomial infections among healthcare workers, but simply because we are having all of these surges, uh, we really do need our healthcare staff to be at its maximum supply. Um, so I think that they can't be missing work, unfortunately. Um, for Johnson & Johnson, I would say an additional dose makes sense just because the Sasanki study from South Africa, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but basically it looked at 480,000 healthcare workers uh, through waves that were dominated by the beta variant and the delta variant, and it looked at how effective the vaccine was, and it was one dose. And it did a really, really great job at protecting from death. It was about 91 to 96% effective against death, which is great, but it was 71% effective against hospitalization. Um, and the mRNA vaccines are much, much more usually in most studies than 90% even effective against hospitalization. So it just seems like unfair um, and it's creating an inequity as far as um, their protection. Um, and of and course, when you, yeah. When you say the J and you're talking about, you're talking about getting a boost like another J and J, you know, vaccine, or you're talking about getting a, like uh, another, I guess, Pfizer so this is yeah so this is the big question um the comcov study in the uk has been looking at what happens when you mix vaccines because basically uh the uk purchased a bunch but didn't really have i believe the production supply to maintain all of these vaccines and give them out to people so they started doing delayed doses and then astrazeneca had its whole clotting problem and they looked at the risk benefit balance in younger adults and they decided to offer them a different vaccine so they started tracking um what happens when you combine AstraZeneca with Pfizer, for example. And I think they're looking at what happens with Moderna, but Moderna came to the UK later. And it looks to be perfectly safe and it looks to be at least as effective uh, to use one dose of AstraZeneca and one dose of Pfizer. And if you look at the immune response, it actually looks to be even better um, when you mix them. But we don't have that kind of data for Johnson & Johnson. It's likely that it would be similar um, to what happens when you combine AstraZeneca with an mRNA vaccine. And we do have a preprint now from Janssen, which is the pharmaceutical company that Johnson & Johnson owns that makes their vaccine. And basically it showed that if you give people another dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you really do um, boost their immune response by a lot. You increase those antibody levels by a lot, but we don't know how much that translates to an increase in actual vaccine effectiveness. And even mm -hmm. so, um, the antibody levels compared to like the mRNA vaccines were not that high. Um, so it's a complex question. At the same time, though, you do have to wonder, like, if you're giving people third doses of RNA vaccines, um, you're making effectively not even a secondary immune response, but a tertiary immune response, which is going to be even more robust and even faster than the secondary immune response you get from the second dose, um, which makes me wonder about the potential for adverse events and reactogenicity, and in particular, like myocarditis being probably the most important one. Uh, because of its frequency and the populations that it affects. So it might, it definitely is worth, worth looking into combining Johnson & Johnson with mRNA vaccines to see if you can like tailor basically the best option for everyone. Like for example, younger males for their third dose might make sense to get a Johnson & Johnson vaccine or um, AstraZeneca if that's available rather than mRNA. But we need that data. So right now we just don't have that data. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I think is interesting, I guess, is that, um, I don't know, I, I feel like they always show the charts with like uh, when you get that th like for the folks who got the third booster, the antibody levels go up. Mm -hmm. um, but it, 
I don't, just like you were saying, I don't know if it's clear that like antibody titers are necessarily, um, I, don't, I don't know, truly suggest that folks are more or less protected over time to the, yeah, to the it's, virus. It's, yeah. It's really tricky. There have been a lot of really good studies recently, mostly looking at non-human primates, and they show that antibody titers are correlated with protection against disease. And we also have a study even from 2020 that showed that if you gave on the CAC like an infusion of neutralizing antibodies and then you challenge it with SARS-CoV-2, it doesn't get sick. So we do know that antibodies are likely sufficient for protection, but what we don't know is whether there are other important components of the immune response that could step in uh, if you do become infected that would protect you. Um, what it's looking like is that in particular, the Delta variant, it might replicate so quickly that it takes a little bit of time if your antibody levels have waned a lot for your immune system to kick in. And it would reliably protect you against severe disease and hospitalization, everything, but it might not protect you against symptomatic disease. Um, so I think one of the points in the third dose that they're offering is with each additional dose, you're going to make even more memory cells and you're going to boost those antibody titers. And I mean, those antibody titers will drop over time. Of course, that's just the nature of the immune system. But by having even more memory cells, they can respond even more quickly and potentially prevent even symptomatic disease. But, uh, you know, that would just be a guess. I don't really know what the inner workings there are behind the CDC's thinking there. And I mean, um, I also don't really don't like how it was done because ACIP is really the one who's supposed to decide this sort of thing. And they kind of went over their head and they're meeting in a few days to discuss both recommendations for the fully approved Pfizer vaccine, which now has full licensure and um, the prospect of boosters and whether or not they're needed. Um, so I'm not I, I'm really not sure about the process by which they went about it. Okay, so I feel like we have to put we're gonna put a little pin in um uh, talking a little bit about like the FDA giving uh Pfizer yeah I guess moving it up from like EUA to truly FDA approval mm -hmm. yeah, I yeah. did I did just want to give um a a mini shout out to uh Dr B K uh Bahuma who's who's also here she's a, a infectious disease specialist who I I really love reading her content on COVID-19. I don't know, BK, did you want to, did you want to say hello? I invited Dr. BK to the stage if she wants to say anything. I really like her work too. Yes. I don't know if her, is your mic working? Uh, oh, okay. Sorry. She said she's having a little trouble adding her mic, okay. but if, if, if the gods are on our side, um, she will, uh, she will be able to speak just because I, I, she's really, um, really has good work about not just, I guess, the vaccine as it's been rolled out in the United States, but I think the, uh, like, other countries who have, who have, haven't gotten as much access to it and, and how that sort of played out in, like, the economic way. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can talk maybe just a little bit about what does it mean now that, you know, um, Pfizer has gotten FDA approval and it's no longer, uh, you know, just emergency use authorization. Um, um it's mostly a legal thing, and I'm not really an expert on the details of that. I know that it now means that you can mandate the vaccine um, in certain settings. I believe um, states are now able to mandate it for, like, schools, for public schools, for example. Um, if that's something that they want to do, I don't know that they will. Um, but really, the main thing it means is that Pfizer now has six months of data that they need to be able to, like, like get the, the thing instead of the two months that they needed for EUA. It's kind of at this point when we've given out millions and millions of doses and we've tracked the vaccines extensively for safety and effectiveness and everything, it's kind of ceremonial. 
to give it okay. full approval. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, now now I think BK is your mic working. Yeah, it is. Oh, excellent, perfect. It's great to hear your voice. So, <laughs> do you mind introducing yourself? Can you just tell, I guess, everyone who you are and and why I am very happy that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, hello to everyone who uh, is joining. My name is Bahuma Kabisan Titanji. I am an infectious diseases physician at Emory, and I'm also um, a physician scientist uh, working mainly in the area of virology. Prior to the COVID, my focus was HIV, but with the pandemic, we've all kind of expanded our, our research um, reach, and I'm happy to join. Excellent. That that is excellent. Well, okay. So, I almost I want to kick this FDA question to you, but I also just want to say, um, what has it been disruptive? I mean, like, because I mean, I guess most of your research was mostly in HIV previously, and now things have shifted. Um, are we? Is that to our detriment, or I mean, I guess, yeah. How, I guess how has that changed? You know, your research world. Well, it, it certainly changed the focus. Uh, I think every virology lab sort of pivoted to the question at hand, which was which was COVID that was dominating both research and and uh, other aspects of the news. So I think last year, really, a lot of us that were doing work in other viruses just kind of put that work on, on hold for a little bit as we diverted our resources and our time to do more COVID-related things. But I would say in the second year of, pande- of the pandemic, a lot of people are moving back to their original research loves and uh, picking back up on projects because, as you mentioned, it is important to make sure that we're not neg- neglecting other other public health issues that also need um, or have important scientific questions that need to be addressed. So it's now a matter of just being able to spread out the time between COVID and other things as well. Excellent, excellent. Um, so we had, before, you know, uh, I, before I ask you that question, we were kind of talking about the FDA now giving Pfizer not just emergency uh, use authorization, but now getting full FDA approval. Um, is this something, is it? Is this more than a legal matter or is it, you know, is it, does it now give more credence to, to, to Pfizer and their vaccine? Well, I mean, it, it certainly gives more credence to, to the vaccine, more for those who are waiting for that seal of approval uh, as the final barrier that they wanted to see crossed in order to be able to be more accepting of, of the vaccine. But really, when you look at uh, the difference between an emergency use authorization and a full FDA approval, it's really down to just technicalities. But if it makes any difference in moving the needle in terms of the vaccine hesitant and driving up uh, vaccine uptake, then it's most certainly welcome. And for that, that's why so many people in the public health space were just really excited to finally see this FDA full approval, because that's certainly something that you can leverage in terms of doing advocacy for vaccine uptake that's something that companies can use to roll out mandates because they now have the justification that it's gone through the FDA approval process that you would have for other therapeutics. Right, right. Yeah, so I just put a link. Hopefully people can see that. Um, 
Laurie Garrett, she just, you know, put a little post about saying, she says, here come the insurance penalties against unvaccinated workers. Once the U.S. FDA licensed the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, the floodgates open. Um, she said, yeah, if you still aren't vaccinated, it's going to cost you cash, maybe your job. Um, so I, 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 is there, a, is this like a, a two-edged sword, you know, for folks who are like, you know, I guess, who aren't so well off to do financially. Um, I have um, heard that insurance will refuse to pay for bills relating to hospitalization and unvaccinated patients. Um, I don't know how prevalent that is, but I, I have heard of it happening. Well, I, I don't think that that would only be that. COVID will be the first time that that is happening, right? I mean, no, if, you are, if you are a smoker, uh, you tend to have higher insurance premiums. If you, are, mm-hmm. if you have other high-risk behaviors that put you at a higher risk for uh, developing an illness that would land you in hospital, then some insur- in health insurance companies reserve the right to increase your premium. And you can see that that has already been the case with um, Delta Airline opting to instead increase the premiums, insurance premiums for workers who refuse to get vaccinated as opposed to mandating um, a vaccine. So it is going to happen. And I think it's just one of the consequences of, again, our personal right to choose. So if you if there is a vaccine that is highly effective at keeping you out of the hospital from a deadly disease and you choose not to get that vaccine, then you know your employer does also have the right to 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 take other measures to either compel you to to get the vaccine or um, at least make it make it hard for you to to be a burden on 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 on, on providing you with health insurance and and other aspects. You know, it's it, it you can debate about this all day, but the bottom line is that every action that we take does have consequences and. If people say that they don't want to, to get vaccinated, and that's something that is mandated by their workplace, then it's going to be have, have to be a decision that they make as to whether they want to keep working for that employer or if they feel strongly enough against vaccines to quit their job. Yeah, I mean, it's all about risk management, right? If someone, like, if you think the vaccine is too risky, you're not required to take it. But that doesn't mean that the people around you aren't allowed to manage the risk that you now pose to their safety or their livelihood. Absolutely. Okay, so if you're listening to this show and you're loving the information that you're getting, you can't stop listening. It's time to leave a review. Okay, go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, drop a review. It really does go a super long way so other people can get these golden nuggets that only you are privy to. Honestly, if you're not leaving a review or not telling your friends about it, it's kind of selfish. Okay, and don't be selfish. This is a we are a generous podcast. All right, let's get back to the show. So you are listening to the Silent Doc live. Uh, we I, I've made uh, Ed Nirenberg and Dr. Huma uh, my co-hosts here, and we're really just doing a vaccine update, just throwing around a couple questions. If you guys do have questions, I will try to monitor as best I can. Um, you can just like raise your hand and. I'll make you a speaker, and then you can you can ask your question. Um, and I hope you're enjoying 
the little jazz sounds in the background. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit. When I had talked about this third shot or booster, um, Ed brought up a good point that, you know, weighing sort of this um, benefit of, you know, should, should, should Pfizer be, you know, ramping up, giving folks a third dose, or should we be working hard to get um, doses to lower income countries? And BK, I know you talk a lot about, you know, this on, you know, your Twitter timeline. So I just wanted to see what are your thoughts in this area? Yeah, I think I, I, I listened to, to Ed sort of summarize the reasons why I think a lot of folks do agree that, that we just don't have enough data that supports giving a third dose boosters of mRNA vaccines to healthy, fully vaccinated folks across the board, you know, um, because not only does the science not support that there would be an added benefit in terms of preventing severe disease and, and offloading uh, the healthcare system, if you have massive rollout of booster doses for everyone in countries where you already have 70% of the population vaccinated, what you're doing is actually taking away from the global supply. And you still, you, you always have to, to put in the back of your mind that so far as the virus is circulating unchecked in other parts of the world, it doesn't matter if we get to 80% immunization within the United States, we would always be at a threat of a new variant emerging somewhere else that always has the potential maybe to be a more uh, immune evasive um, variant that would make the, the vaccines that we currently have available even less effective. So it, it is important to think about prioritizing getting a maximum number of people on the planet vaccinated because that's really one of the key ways that we have currently to slow the spread of the virus and give it fewer opportunities to continue mutating and selecting for um, immune escape uh, uh, mutations. And, you know, ultimately we, we would find out what the decision is in the U.S. in terms of boosters after the ACIP holds its meeting on Monday. But with the announcement um, by the White House, many of us wonder whether we would actually see a reversal and a more tailored booster approach to be mainly for for the elderly, for the immunocompromised, and other high-risk uh, populations, as opposed to a more widespread rollout, which would severely compromise the vaccine uh, equity that we're all pushing for. I agree completely. Nice. Nice. Okay, that was uh, that, that was great. Um, I think it's. I think that the you bring up a really good point of just like I think always thinking about pandemics and everything globally, as opposed to um, being sort of isolationist with our thought. Um, I, I did just want to talk a little bit about, um, and just get a little nerdy about this, um, you know, waning antibodies and sort of T-cell immunity. I mean, I guess like our, the limits of medicine's ability to really measure like T-cell immunity. Um, do either one of you guys want to speak to that? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's really, really complicated. Um, so basically, yeah, right. <laughs> um, 
So basically, the immune system has two major arms, the adaptive immune system, and that would be your B-cell immunity and your T-cell immunity. B-cells are the cells that make antibodies, um, and basically, B-cells are kind of a stem cell, and they will differentiate into either plasma cells or other antibody-secreting cells or memory B-cells. Memory B-cells can go on to continue to evolve their antibodies basically over time and give you ones that bind even more tightly, that neutralize even more effectively. And if you encounter the virus again, they will rapidly differentiate into antibody-secreting cells and give you a boost. Um, and what we actually see with the vaccines is that even though the antibody levels do seem to level off over time, there is a continued and steady rise in memory B cells, which is a really great sign. The cells that like maintain antibody levels, quote unquote, forever are these cells called long-lived plasma cells. And they basically just churn out tons and tons of antibody. Unlike the memory B cells, they don't really divide and they live in your bone marrow. And the fact that they live in your bone marrow makes them pretty hard to study because we're not exactly about to ask a bunch of people who are healthy for bone marrow biopsies solely for research purposes. Um, I can't think of many people who would agree to that. Although, I mean, I'm sure there are some, maybe it's worth asking. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and then, uh, um, so actually, the nice thing about the long-lived plasma cells is that they have very specific markers on them that you can look for, and those cells last for decades, potentially for your entire life. Um, so having more of those means that you will have steady high levels of antibodies, like permanently, basically. Um, we know from other vaccines, though, like, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine, you can have undetectable levels of antibodies and still be protected because you have a lot of memory B cells left over. Uh, the other arm would be the T cells and T cells have like two smaller arms and there are the helper T cells and the killer T cells. Killer T cells will, as their name suggests, kill any virally infected cell that they recognize. Helper T cells are kind of like the brains of the immune system. They organize the activity of all the other cells and give them cues for what to do. Uh, and basically with the mRNA vaccines and with the adenovirus vaccines, for sure, we see really, really strong um, T cell responses that are long lasting uh, over time. That's also true of COVID-19 uh, as well. But of course you have to survive COVID-19 to get all those benefits. Excellent. Okay, so that that was the that was the pathophys primer uh, for for those who uh, may have forgotten. Um, okay, so um, I kind of wanted to tackle this idea. We I guess we were talking a little bit about unvaccinated folks, and um, I I don't know. I guess um, you know I feel like it's all being dumped on people who are unvaccinated. Um, they're taking a lot of heat right now. I guess I want to ask questions at this point. Who who are they and and why? I don't know. Do do you guys? I mean, I guess me and my clinical practice, like I, I spend a lot of time with patients and trying to get them to do things that they don't want to. Um, but I really feel like um, the conversation that I have with them is always. Um, I'm not I'm not typically as effective as the the Kimberly Mannings of the world. Uh, who have these really long general conversations and they always end up getting vaccinated. What have your guys' experience been? I've done a, I've done a, a lot of work on sort of um, vaccine hesitancy and, and just education throughout the pandemic. And I think that um, like the unvaccinated is it, it's just such a diverse group and we do ourselves a huge disservice in terms of being able to really be persuasive about vaccine uptake by lumping these people together. So in my mind, I generally put people into, into 
categories just to to be able to 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 better know how to approach them. There's always going to be a 10% of the population that's going to be adamant about not wanting to get vaccinated. And this is not just for the COVID vaccine, right? There are people who refuse the measles vaccines, who don't vaccinate their kids. They're 100% anti-vaxxer. These are not the people where I spend the most of my energy because I know that they already have very fixed beliefs about vaccination and what they want to do in terms of accepting vaccinations, and you're just not going to convince them. I think the higher yield group that uh, we really need to focus on are the people who are vaccine hesitant and who may um, just really be struggling about uh, with issues that they feel they haven't had satisfying questions uh, for. And, and those people, I find that it takes more than one interaction to really be able to change minds. I think like leading with compassion, not losing your patience and being willing to revisit the conversation multiple times is usually how you get those people across the hump. I'll take the example of my outpatient clinic. Uh, I've had certain in individuals and patients of mine for, for whom it took me four or five conversations in order to be able to really get them to the point where they felt that their questions were addressed and they were comfortable with going ahead and getting vaccinated. Now, I could have given up on conversation two or conversation three and wouldn't have kept like bringing it up at every single visit and being, you know, giving them the space to ask the question. So we really need to think about that. And I think another uh, important group that does get lost in, in, in the narrative, although we have vaccines and they are free, there is still a non-negligible segment of the society that is not able um, to get access to these vaccines. And by access, what do I mean? We still have people who are not able to afford to take a day off work if you know they have adverse uh, an adverse uh, reaction to the vaccine and have a headache and feel like they have the flu they cannot afford to miss a day's pay and for those people it is a deterrent for not for not wanting to go get vaccinated because they're worried that they might get sick and to them that might mean they're not able to make their rent and they end up homeless or they're not able to to feed their kids and that particular demographic tends to be people who are from minoritized groups, people who tend to be of a lower um, a socioeconomic uh, strata. And we, we cannot forget these people and just lump them as being vaccine hesitant. I think there's still a lot of work that can be done to get vaccines to these people instead of expecting them to come to the vaccines and also to put the imperative on their employers to give them paid leave if they need that after getting vaccinated. You know, you should not be at the threat of losing your job just because you went and got a shot. So there are several issues that we can do to continue to improve uh, vaccine uptake. And it's a very complex picture that I think we oversimplify and that hasn't served as well through the pandemic. I definitely agree with everything that was said. And I mean, access um, issues can also be quite literally physical, right? Like the U.S. has famously said that no one is more than five, five mile vaccination site. But if you don't have access to public transportation, for example, or you don't have a car and you have to travel five miles to get vaccinated, that's kind of a lot. 
And also, um, you have to think about the kids, right? Kids are also part of the population. They also contribute to our herd immunity threshold. And in particular, that has been one important change with the Delta variant. We started seeing data coming out of the UK that when they did contact tracing, it was consistently coming from schools that the outbreaks were stemming from. And just today, there was an MMWR showing that a teacher infected 12 of her students and then 15 other people um, with the Delta variant. So um, we definitely can't forget about vaccinating kids. And right now, we just have a very difficult position with that because uh, a lot of kids are too young to be vaccinated. Those are truly excellent points. I think always thinking about the heterogeneity of those who have not been vaccinated is super, super important. So I wanted to give, I guess I I haven't mentioned before, but Dr. Clark uh, requested to speak. I don't know if you have a comment or question, but please feel free to, yeah. Yes, uh, comment and just loving the panel, the, the clarity of your group is fantastic. Uh, I'm a physics professor, and so I've brought the pandemic, or the physics of it, into my classroom because of the doctors and engineers and scientists that I'm training. And that's a lot of fun. But I'm curious what the panel thinks about what are the big, like, kind of global problems that are in the way of getting vaccines. And so I think besides the apathy of wealthy nations <laughs> to do the smart thing and help poorer nations get the vaccine. Maybe is there technology like, you know, a nasal inhaler version versus, you know, frozen vials? You know, what are the other things that people like me and people not like me who are, you know, we're not in positions of power, but I could advocate for you know, uh, I'm looking at what's the list of things to evangelize about, to vote for, it, that sort of stuff. You know, what kind of list would this panel make that could get people targeting future actions that would change this the next time we come around to this problem? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. I've got a few things to say about that. <laughs> First of all, thank you, Clark, for uh, for that question. It's something that I think about a lot, especially like, you know, it ties so well with my interest in global health and, and vaccine advocacy in, in low-income countries. The low-hanging fruit uh, when it comes to COVID vaccines, obviously the cold chain issues remain one of the, the biggest challenges uh, for a widespread distribution of, of, of the vaccines. Speaking mainly of uh, the mRNA vaccines, even with uh, the new FDA approval for limited periods of st- storage at minus 20 degrees for both, I think, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, a lot of people don't always grasp that even maintaining a minus 20 end-to-end cold chain uh, to get vaccines to very remote parts in in low-income countries, and I would speak mainly for sub-Saharan Africa that I'm most familiar with, can be quite challenging. So there's there's still a lot of work that we can do um, in terms of improving um, uh, uh, the types of vaccines that we make so that we have vaccines that don't require uh, cold storage, not even extra cold storage, but even storage at minus 20 degrees, which can still present a non-negligible um, a challenge to delivery. Uh, the second thing that comes to my mind uh, in terms of the COVID vaccine specifically is also the issue around expiration dates. 
Now, a lot of the vaccines that are currently uh, under emergency use listing have expiration dates of less than six months, and some of them even just three months. And that presents a lot of logistical challenges in terms of the window that you have to distribute a vaccine from the moment it's delivered to a country by, say, for instance, COVAX, to getting it to the most remote parts of that country. And that issue around expiration dates and the short shelf life of the the COVID vaccines has led to um, lots of wastage in terms of doses having to be discarded because they were delivered with too too short a window to allow uh, the governments within these countries to be able to effectively distribute them before that uh, expiration date. So anything that, or technology that can help expand the lifespans of the, the current vaccine platforms that we have available would certainly ease the burden at the logistical end when it comes to distribution. Uh, the last thing that you mentioned, which is, which is, also very important and it's, 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 it's uh, certainly uh, an avenue or kind of direction that I hope vaccine development will go in, it will go to us, is delivery methods. Right now, all of the vaccines that we have for COVID require uh, some form of intramuscular delivery. So you need, you're talking about syringes, you're talking about maintaining some uh, sterilization, sterile environments in terms of making sure you're not reusing needles and you're making sure you're not causing transmission of other diseases through vaccine delivery, which increases the paraphernalia and the logistical challenges of of getting vaccines into arms, basically. Now, when you think about other vaccines that have much easier delivery, I think of things like the oral polio vaccine, which because of its ease of delivery is one of the major reasons why we've been able to eradicate wild polio in in sub-Saharan Africa. So certainly thinking about platforms that have that type of easy delivery would really help overcome a major barrier in terms of getting vaccines to a maximum number of people. Now, uh, intranasal delivery is is something that's very interesting for COVID for COVID vaccines, but there are also microneedle patches which have been looked at for influenza vaccine delivery and could also be a way of thinking about delivering COVID vaccines and other vaccines in the future. I think that was a really incredible summary. That's going to be really hard to follow because Dr. VK really hit on everything, I think, and more than what I wanted to say. The one thing that I think I could add is I think people are a little bit underestimating how hard it is to have an effective uh, mucosal vaccine, like an intranasal vaccine or like an oral polio vaccine. Um, Oral polio, one of the major reasons that it works so well is because it contains a live polio virus. Um, And that does give you some limitations because you can't give that to severely immunocompromised people. And then when it comes to mucosal uh, vaccines, it basically either needs to be a live attenuated one to work or it needs to have some uh, adjuvant attached to it, which is just something that stimulates the immune response. And the track record for mucosal adjuvants is not that great. It's really, really hard to get a dose that a lot of people can tolerate well. Um, There was an intranasal flu vaccine for a while that did use a mucosal adjuvant, but it was so potently inflammatory that it actually caused Bell's palsy and that vaccine had to be taken off the market. And with intranasal vaccines specifically, even though this is probably a big advantage that 
people who recover from COVID have as far as their immune response relative to people who get vaccinated, as far as the local immunity in the upper respiratory tract. The issue is um, they don't, it's really hard to make a durable one. And the dosages also tend to need to be a lot higher than anything you do via an intramuscular injection. So it creates production difficulties as well. Um, So there are a lot of hurdles to go through um, for sure. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about like COVID-19 and sort of like, I don't know, the background capitalist impetus to sort of reopen. Um, I think uh, going with this whole idea of vaccine hesitancy, um, I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine who um, is, I'm still unclear if he's vaccinated or not, uh, but his main concern was that, um, you know, we're not, we're not focusing uh, on the fact that that there is there's a, a a more sinister drive, I guess, for people to get vaccinated, go back to work, keep keep sort of like the wheels turning, and keeping like the working class sort of working, despite the fact that there's still, I guess, some danger of transmission in those who have been vaccinated. Um, I know this is a little bit separate point, but I guess I'm I'm curious. Uh, how do you, how would you speak to that individual or, or what are your thoughts in that area? Maybe Ed wants to take this one. I need to think about it a bit more. <laughs> I'll, I'll get started and then I'll, I'll let you follow Dr. VK. Um, I, I mean, I think there's definitely validity to that argument, but I don't, I think it's a little bit oversimplify to pretend that it's a purely capitalist thing right because like I I don't think there's a person out there today who doesn't want to get back to their pre-pandemic life like I just think that that's Mm. the fact of who we are it's uprooted everything it's been incredibly disruptive I mean like parents uh have been through hell and are still going through hell they had to have their kids at home and they can't work while they're at home and it's just a mess all all together so that's all definitely true but I don't really see what that necessarily takes away from the fact that we have very effective very safe vaccines you know that really would make a huge difference if we could get more people to take them yeah I think I think that I I agree with Ed on that and you know to people who come with it from uh, that sort of line of thinking and talk about is this all driven by capitalism and, and is this just all about, you know, making pharma rich and getting people back into the workforce? I always remind them of the fact that, you know, this is a pandemic that 20 months in has claimed more than 4 million lives worldwide. You know, so despite how anyone feels about Uh, how capitalism has played into the story of the pandemic, there is still an imperative to stop the loss of human life that is being driven by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have effective ways of doing that. When you think about the people who have died from, uh, from the pandemic, it's not just people who were, you know, actively working uh, in the workforce. You have, the elderly that we lost in the initial waves last winter. Now we have children that we're losing um, on a daily basis, not only in the United States, but in other places that are facing the Delta surge. So is it really worth not being accepting of a solution that has the potential to stem that degree of death and suffering just because we feel strongly that there might be a capitalism agenda? 
I don't think that that is enough justification for me because every human life is valuable and we have ways that are effective of preventing loss of life from COVID-19. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really excellent. I think, um, I think we have to hold two things in our hand and know that, you know, our, our primary objective is to um, preserve life as much as we, as much as we can in this case. Um, so I, I just put a little, I don't know if people can see it. I put a little post, um, Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh um, sort of mentioned that, you know, folks are so passionate about kids not wearing masks at school. Where's all the passion when schools run out of soap and toilet paper, buildings are crumbling and teachers are not adequately paid. Um, so I feel like we had sort of touched on, um, I guess, you know, vaccination um, in in kids or, you know, the fact that parents are now having to grapple with, you know, sending their kids to, to school despite, you know, other kids not being vaccinated or, you know, schools not having appropriate, you know, social distancing um, sort of sort of policies. Um, I guess maybe a good place to start would be, you know, uh, are we close to being able to vaccinate children or, you know, or like, what are the steps forward, you know, for, um, for getting vaccines to all ages? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, I mean, it doesn't look like they're coming anytime soon for people under the age of 12. One of the things that um, full licensure of the Pfizer vaccine technically lets you do is you can give certain pharmaceuticals, certain medications off labels, meaning for, and for a demographic that they're not initially prescribed for. But the CDC, the AAP, and everyone have come out strongly against off-label use of the Pfizer vaccine in children younger than 12. Um, for really valid reasons, um, it looks like they likely need a different dose. It probably can be smaller and they won't have any loss to their effectiveness, but they will likely have fewer side effects and less risk for potentially serious adverse events like myocarditis. Um, so it all makes sense. Um, it unfortunately doesn't look like that data uh, will be available for kids as young as six until about at least the end of October at, um, at the best case scenario. Uh, and I mean, I feel really bad for parents because I don't really know what to advise. And like, if you're in Florida and your mask mandate is illegal and they're not doing distancing and they're not doing ventilation and they're not doing humidification, uh, the vaccine would basically be your only option, but you can't even have that. Um, so I, I think that people really are in an impossible position right now and it's terrible. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's a it's a very cha challenging position for, for parents to be in right now, um, especially for those kids who are not within the age ranges where they, they can have vaccines. And, you know, kind of uh, adding to uh, Ed's point about uh, the ACIP and the CDC coming on uh, really strongly against um, off-label use of vaccines, um, in children young, younger than 12, with the mRNA vaccines in children younger than 12, I would add to that fact that I completely agree with the ACIP and the CDC on that, but also just reminding folks that off-label use of uh, any medical intervention in a healthy person also carries a higher burden of proving that you're actually doing no harm. And I think it's important that we wait uh, for the data in that age group and we know exactly what dose of vaccine is appropriate for children uh, younger than 12 before uh, we get to that point. 
Unfortunately, the last update I saw uh, from, I believe this was either, this was Pfizer, was we would not be having that data uh, before December of this year because uh, the sample sizes of the trials were actually increased. Um, so it looks like it's going to be a next year situation. Now, yeah, that's right. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah. So, uh, which which really puts the onus on on the adults, right? Um, to we have to do the best we can to protect these kids, and it's about again increasing the percentages of people who are vaccinated in in the general population. I'm I'm in the state of Georgia. We only have forty one percent of adults who are fully vaccinated. You know, the vaccines are not mandated for educators in the state, and there are no mass mandates in, in the public schools as well. So it, it really makes it hard to protect kids appropriately. And, and the adults just have to be more vocal about this and hold our politicians accountable so that they pass laws that actually protect kids who can't really advocate for themselves. Great point. Yeah. Um, so th that was that was really awesome. So for, for folks who I guess who are who are joining, you know, listening in. Uh, so my name is Chuma Obaneme. While I am a physician, I am a I'm a fellow who's practicing a gastroenterologist. So I am moderating this discussion because you know I don't I don't claim to have the expertise that that my two experts do. So I have uh, Dr. Bahuma, who is an ID specialist at Emory University. So we work at the same hospital. I also have Ed Nirenberg, um, who founded his site, the, the Platform Disease, uh, which he goes into deep uh, dives on immunological topics. Um, so they're my sort of guests today. So we're just sort of, you know, tackling different questions, um, uh, tackling different questions. Um, so you are definitely welcome, whoever is uh, to, to ask the question. Oh, actually, I think, um, I guess with Jay would like to um, um, speak and ask the question. So I'm trying to connect him now to see. Um, with Jay, you can, uh, if you have a comment or question, you can feel free to go ahead. With Jay? Unless he just wanted to be a speaker. Okay, so yes, we can just keep going. Okay. <laughs> yeah, with Jay, if you if you want to speak, you have to unmute your ha! mic. And Found then... <laughs> All right. So now you guys can hear yes. me, right? Okay. Yes, yes. Sorry about that. Um, so first, first of all, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Um, Ed, I'm always uh, think peppering him with little questions and trying to find, uh, you know, information out because I'm this. I mean, the whole COVID thing is unfortunately in a good in a bad way very fascinating but um one thing i was wondering if you guys could touch on as far as vaccines go a couple couple things i was wondering about is where you think the future is going for those with like the the previously confirmed covid diagnosis and then a boost you know and then one of the mrnas or the j and j's and where that would go with boosters in the future but then the other thing i was kind of wondering is you know, did we get it wrong in America by, you know, the four weeks spacing versus a few, a couple months? Okay. Okay. So, yeah, in the beginning of the conversation, we did talk a little bit about, um, you know, for the, the, the implications of this third booster. Um, and so, 
I guess we can, I don't know, Ed, if you wanted to, to retouch on some of it, because I know you had, had mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how um, the ACIP and everyone will be treating um, doses of vaccine as boosters after recovery. Uh, what we do know is that there's been an NWR published now that shows that two doses of uh, mRNA vaccine do reduce your risk of uh, reinfection, which can happen. It's not particularly common, but it definitely happens uh, with COVID-19. And we also know from immunological data that if you give even one dose of mRNA vaccine, your immune response is incredible. You have 10 to 45 times as much antibodies as people who get two doses of mRNA vaccine who have never um, been infected. You have an even bigger T cell response. So really, like the people who recover and then get a dose of vaccine have seemed to have the highest uh, quality immunity of all. Um, as far as what was the second part again? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think the second part was. Um... I don't remember. Did we get it wrong saying, in terms of spacing? Oh, that's right. Four weeks. Yeah, that's four right. Weeks. That's right. Yeah. Um, that is a very hard question to answer. Um, in general, the rule in vaccinology is you cannot give a primary series of vaccine doses less than three weeks apart, because if you do that, the second, the first dose will interfere with the immune response from the second one. And in general, when you're talking about a primary series, the farther apart you space the doses the better the immune response will be. Um, but of course we have a pandemic and the longer you go without someone having both their doses of RNA vaccine, the longer they're going with incomplete protection. So I don't know that there is a right answer. I think personally with the Delta variant surging in the way that it is, we should be trying to get as many people fully vaccinated as quickly as possible. And then potentially, you know, working to increase production and give them a booster later on if it's necessary. Um, I don't think that spacing the dose out as much as possible is gonna be really viable, even if it does have a real immunological benefit. What do you think, Dr. PK? Yeah, I, I think that I agree with you. Even if you look at the data um, that came out of Canada and the UK with regards to uh, maybe an enhanced immune response in people who had a greater spacing than three weeks, Although there is some uh, a slightly higher uh, antibody titers, the kind of response that you're getting with uh, mRNA vaccines, anyways, even with a three-week spacing, is just it's just out of this world when you com compare it to other vaccine platforms. We're already talking about really, really high antibody levels. So, what's the added benefit with the the spaced-out dosing? It's really hard to tease out. And I would agree with Ed in, 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 in with the fact that, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. We know that the two doses protect uh, better than having a single dose. And we want to get a maximum number of people fully vaccinated as quickly as possible. So if a three-week spacing is good enough, I think that as an initial strategy, it did make sense to speed that up, roll it out, and get as many people fully vaccinated as possible. Now, there's always the chance that, obviously, if you're starting out at a, a level that's not the maximum level that you can achieve with a three-week spacing, that the antibody decline happens a lot quicker than for individuals who have uh, say, for instance, a 12-week spacing between their doses. Those are things that we'll kind of uh, get a clearer picture on uh, with the follow-up studies, both from uh, individuals who had uh, a 12-week spacing as, as compared to individuals who got the vaccines with three-week spacing during the clinical trials um, led by Pfizer. But right now, 
I think that, you know, the, the strategy for three weeks is, has worked really well. And it's a way in which we can get a maximum number of people vaccinated, which is what we need to tackle the pandemic. Awesome. Um, so, uh, so I, I, uh, I think I just got a message from uh, Dr. Clark saying, I think you maybe had a question about um, some vaccine ingredients. So Dr. Clark, feel free to. Yes. Um, so I think Ed may have even written about this already. I've, I read too many things, so I can't remember. Um, but I've had some luck telling people, Hey, look, this vaccine, it's almost completely sugar. It's a 10th, fat and a little bit of salt and an insanely small amount of mRNA. And I've had some folks have go, Oh, okay. It's not the scary thing that I thought it was, but I know in the back of my mind to some degree, you know, to say that it's uh, you know, this, it's a fat, well, of course it is 83% sugar, sucrose is sucrose, but you know, to say a lipid is a fat, especially the, the way it's structured in this vaccine with, you know, names that are impossible to say, and, and all of that. I'm just curious, you know, it seems to me there's some sort of oversimplification that is done when we say the vaccine is sugar, fat, salt, mRNA. But then again, it's not. So I'm just curious how these, uh, the panel thinks about the way we um, communicate that science in those terms. Just curious. Yeah, yeah. I also think, um, and I'm sure Ed's going to speak on this, uh, part of it, too, that people, I guess, worry about is always, um, I, at least earlier on, I heard a lot of the, is the mRNA going to sort of, yeah, I don't know, get itself into my own DNA? And, like, what do I do about that long term? So, I don't know, BK and Ed, you guys can speak to some of those questions about Well, I thought um, it might be helpful to just go through all the ingredients and talk about what they do, right? I feel like that would be the easiest way to do it. Right, let's um, do it. <laughs> there aren't a lot of them. Um, so Pfizer and Moderna all both have the same basic component. Um, so the components, um, they have the mRNA, right? The mRNA encodes what's called a, well, the spike protein. The spike protein has been engineered a little bit to have what's called prefusion stabilization, meaning it can't fuse cell membranes together like it can on the functional virus, basically. Um, and that's thought to help make it safer because that mechanism is actually thought to contribute to disease and COVID. And it also helps your immune system to better see the proper sites on the spike protein that the antibodies can stick to to make it protective. Uh, the problem with mRNA is that it is a huge molecule um, and it has a lot of negative charges. And there are also enzymes called RNases everywhere. So what that means is basically it's really hard to get it into your cells by itself. And even if you inject like pure on RNA into a person, it's basically just going to get destroyed by the RNAs and nothing's going to happen. So it needs some help. And that's what that lipid nanoparticle is for. Uh, so that has four different lipids in it, uh, which are basically fat lipids are just fats, oils and waxes. Right. So firstly, um, it's got cholesterol. Um, this is a very, very tiny amount of cholesterol. It's not going to affect your risk of heart disease or anything like that. You take in far, far more cholesterol from even your diet. Um, and basically, that just helps to pack the lipids in the nanoparticle more tightly together so that it doesn't come apart. There's also the PEG lipid, polyethylene glycol, and that basically um, helps to the, help the nanoparticle dissolve in water because it's fat and our body is mostly water, right? Um, 
It also has an ionizable lipid, which releases the RNA once it gets inside the cell. And it's got a helper lipid, which also helps to like keep the um, nanoparticle together. Um, so basically all of that is done just to ensure that the RNA can get into your cells without being destroyed. Uh, and the specific like helper lipid and uh, ionizable lipid differ between Pfizer and Moderna, but they're, they're the same idea. Uh, next, you have some salts, and these salts are also different using Pfizer and Moderna, but basically all these salts do is they keep the pH, the acidity, and alkalinity stable because RNA cannot handle significant fluctuations in pH. If it's even a little bit alkaline, it will destroy itself. Uh, so that's what that's for. You just add the salts because when you have a salty solution, it resists, it resists pH changes. When you add acid to these salty solutions, they make base to counteract it. When you make base, they make acid to counteract it and so on. And the last thing is sugar. And the sugar just keeps the nanoparticles from clumping together to each other so that they all stay nice and liquid and separate and everything. Um, I could also pull up the Janssen vaccine ingredients. I just don't remember precisely what they are off the top of my head. Uh, one second. Yeah, yeah. If you send it to me, I don't know if you DM me, I can put it in, or you can just put it into the... Um, oh, here we go. I found it. Uh... Okay. Yeah. So first of all, it's got um, the adenovirus vector. Um, so it's the adenovirus 26. It has the gene inserted for the spike protein. And that gene is inserted in a spot that makes it so that this adenovirus cannot replicate, meaning that you can safely give the vaccine even to severely immunocompromised people because it isn't going to cause a real infection. Uh, then we've got a bunch of salts. Uh, it's got a teeny tiny bit of alcohol, 2.04 milligrams. That actually is there to keep the adenovirus from being destroyed by free radicals. Um, that is just something that's been observed to be a problem with adenovirus vectors in the past. So that's what the ethanol does. It, it does not have nearly enough alcohol to make you drunk. Uh, it takes huge amounts of alcohol to do that. It also has this sugar called uh, beta, uh, 2-hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin that is kind of uh, an adjuvant. It, it helps to stimulate the immune system to make a more effective response. And it also does similar things of like keeping the adenoviruses from clumping together. And it has polysorbate 80, just like the mRNA vaccines have the PEG, uh, the polyethylene glycol in them. And that basically just helps it to dissolve. And that's it. That's what's in the vaccines. And, and going back to uh, Dr. Clark's uh, question as, as to whether we offer too simplistic uh, explanations of what the vaccines contain, I think it varies from person to person. Some people want the detailed breakdown like what uh, Ed just provided to us, uh, whereas other people are just more focused on other questions. It's not so much about um, getting into the details of the exact ingredients and for so some people, they're just fine with you saying, yeah, it's a little bit of salt, it's a little bit of sugar, it's a little bit of fat to help transport this mRNA into your cells and, and then focusing on other aspects of how the vaccine then actually works to offer protection. So it has both approaches have their uses. I just try to tailor it uh, depending on who I'm speaking to about the vaccines. Some people want to know more. Some people don't want to know that much. Yeah, fair enough. I'm um, sorry, but I, I'm having, I don't know if anybody's having audio issues, but I'm having a little bit of audio issues. Uh, but I will say, I think, you know, and we had first spoken, you you talked to me um, and had spoken about like the, the mRNA piece being almost like a, like a Snapchat uh, message that yeah. you can send to somebody that, right. And I've actually used that for a couple of like my younger patients um, and it actually seemed to resonate pretty well with them. 
for those who still use Snapchat. Um, so I think Shane Crotty um, came up with that one. He's really, really brilliant. Um, so I see uh, Natalie has a question or comment. So as long as you turn your mic on, we should be able to to hear you. Hello. Okay, I think. Yes. We Hi. Can um, I just had a question. Um about the J&J vaccine. I'm I'm a J&J recipient and I've been following kind of the like sparse data that comes out about J&J and I feel like I've even made some friends um from people across the country that kind of feel like a little bit left in the dark uh being J&J recipients. Um and my like personal provider kind of gave me the green light to just go and get an uh mRNA booster. But I feel like a lot of us are just waiting for like an official okay. Does that seem like something that like will come in the near future? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I think it'll be a little while. Um, the study that would have to give that okay is Ensemble 2, uh, which Johnson & Johnson is doing right now. I'm not sure why it's taking them so long to get those results. I can tell you, like, anecdotally, I have a bunch of friends who had J&J, and they just got tired of waiting and took an mRNA vaccine, and they are fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the, uh, the HHS message uh, says that they're, like, looking into it and working to accelerate and everything. Actually, there's a clinician call tomorrow with the CDC and IDSA. I should ask about this because um, Peter Marks is there and he would know. But I, I think it'll be a little yeah. while, um, to be that, honest. That's really helpful because I feel like we've, kind of just well at least me and the people that have gotten it that I've talked to with we are kind of just like waiting out for an official okay but like one by one we're also kind of getting tired and we don't want to be not protected um getting J&J too so I've kind of just been in this limbo of being ready but also a little bit being fearful because there's no data to support that that's like safe but um yeah but yeah I'll, I'll still we know that it's safe to mix. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I'll, I'll still just what I what I tell people who had the J and J is although you know I know people who've gone ahead and gotten the mRNA, it's still important to talk about it with your healthcare provider um, and and get their uh, sort of blessing before yeah. you go ahead and do that. Um, just to make sure that you're considering all your other medical uh, conditions before you go get get a vaccine. I just wanted to say that. Yeah, of course. Actually, I've noticed that my medical provider, I'm in a hotspot that's been like a hotspot throughout the whole pandemic. So just a lot of death, like where I'm from. So our provider uh, down here is like pretty aggressive with saying that the mRNA is like needed for all J&J recipients. But I just didn't want to jump the gun because I kind of felt that way when I got the J&J vaccine and then all the crazy stuff with the blood clots came out, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. I mean, we know that um, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the um, Pfizer vaccine, you can combine them and it's no problem. We have a lot of data on that. And it's a very similar vaccine. I can't really think of a reason that it would be inherently unsafe to combine them. But like Dr. BK said, that's definitely a question for you know your physician who knows your medical history and everything to advise you on. 
Um, regarding the clotting issue with J&J, the latest numbers, it's about three per million doses. So we're talking about something incredibly rare. Um, I really don't think it's a big concern. Maybe if you fall into those like demographics of being like uh, female and middle aged, that's the group that it seems to be highest risk for. But overall, we're talking about something ex- extremely, extremely rare. Perfect. Well, that answers my question. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so I guess for people who are joining late, I probably... I didn't have a true time budget on this, but I'm probably giving it until 4.30. Um, so just to recap, you know, my name's Juma Obaneme. While I am a doctor, um, one, this is not a space necessarily for um, us giving you advice. This is really just us talking and thinking about um, really COVID-19, the updates, and sort of just trying to give people ways to think about how to stay safe, um, given all sort of the, the changing information that's out there. Um and I also have my two guests here, um, Dr. Bohuna, who is an ID specialist at Emory University. Not to say that uh, anything we're saying today is on behalf of that university, but we do both work there. And then um, also Ed Nirenberg, uh, who, who dives deep into immunology. Um, so we are comments, questions. I think I'll probably keep this space open until 4.30. Um, so feel free to just sort of... Um, asked to speak and I'll try to get you in um I guess ending on I don't know if it's a a lighter note or a sadder note um there has been I guess I don't know a really big emergence of ivermectin uh and and it's use um you hate me I know (laughs) (laughs) I, I thought we might as well talk about it to see I guess what are the tips for um, uh, talking to people who, who are trying to tell ivermectin as a, as a therapy for, for COVID-19 when it's typically an anti-parasitic medication? Well, if, before we start, I just want to say that the CDC recently issued an emergency alert on their health alert network because people, well, first of all, prescriptions for ivermectin have soared and it's completely inappropriate. But beyond that, people have taken inappropriate doses of the thing and are being poisoned by it. Um, so you know, don't do that. Um, horse ivermectin is for horses. Um, well, like, that's, that's right. I, I don't really know what else to say about it. Um, regarding like the details, um, it's not entirely clear to me. So from what I understand, the reason that ivermectin was proposed in COVID-19 initially, it was not the thought that it could actually be helpful in COVID-19. The concern was that we're giving all of these patients corticosteroids, which are suppressive for their immune system. And in particular, in lower and middle income countries in the world, you have parasitic infections all over the place. And the person after a course of corticosteroids might be vulnerable. So you might as well give them a dose of ivermectin, like prophylactically, for example, so that they don't worsen or decompensate later on. Somehow that became that ivermectin has antiviral activity. And if you actually look at the numbers, like the dose of ivermectin that you would need to achieve an antiviral effect against SARS-CoV-2 is much, much higher than anything that is recognized to be safe and it's just not viable um we do have a lot of data actually on ivermectin the problem is most of that data is of absolutely abysmal quality and a good chunk of it is patently fraudulent there was recently actually this really big study in egypt of ivermectin for COVID 19 and someone dug into the primary data set and found that the numbers were fabricated so the patients didn't even exist and if you actually read their like manuscript, they basically took press releases about ivermectin and COVID-19, and they just used the thesaurus to change the words around. Um, so basically, um, there have been a few randomized controlled trials of it. 
Um, the most recent one that I know of is the Together trial, which is like this master randomized control trial that is looking at a bunch of therapies, um, hopefully identifying something that works for COVID. Um, it did find actually a positive effect for fluvoxamine, uh, which is really interesting. But for ivermectin, it just finished that analysis. It had no effect. There was a study in JAMA that took that looked at a five-day course of ivermectin, also no effect. There was another study I know of in um I think Biomed Central Infectious Diseases, I think they only gave it for two days, but again, no effect. So as far as we can tell, ivermectin isn't doing anything. Ivermectin also interacts with a lot of medications. Um, so just taking it unsupervised can be incredibly dangerous. And especially the doses that people are advocating taking it at are not known to be safe. So um, just like, please don't, please don't try to take course ivermectin or like any ivermectin really for COVID-19. It's, it's not appropriate. In the clinical trials, it doesn't really seem to do what we want, we would hope for it to do. And I mean, this isn't like a crazy big form of conspiracy to hide effective therapies because it's off-brand or whatever, because guess what? Dexamethasone, the corticosteroid that we know helps in severe COVID-19, it's also off-patent and it's even cheaper. So it doesn't make sense that big pharma could like hide and try to conceal that, but couldn't hide all the data behind ivermectin. Just like, please be careful. I think that's that's a very comprehensive response. I don't know, uh, Dr. Hoover, did you want to add anything? I I hundred percent agree. I I think my my reaction to the whole ivermectin debacle as an ID doc is just exasperation. Um, uh, I I think it's very difficult to engage people who firmly believe that. Uh, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or whatever um, other therapies out there uh, that have been proven to be ineffective against uh, COVID are a miracle cure. It's very difficult to engage these people because um, they're coming from usually a mindset that's so wrapped up in conspiracy theories that it's very difficult to reach them and actually get the message through to them in terms of here's the evidence that this doesn't work please do not harm yourself. So I, I, I think the more useful thing to, to try to communicate is that trying to self-medicate with ivermectin to treat COVID is actually dangerous and you could end up really, really harming yourself. And it's always hmm. not advisable to, to take medications that have not been prescribed or approved by your physician. And um, the easier thing to do is to get vaccinated. And I'll leave it at that. Right, that's well said. So I posted a little link from Dr. Glackoff-Leckman. Just, he was saying the human brain is incredible. It's capable of both engineering a life-saving mRNA vaccine and deciding that anti-parasitic cattle paste is a better option. Just unbelievable range. Um, okay, so um, we're kind of coming to a close here. I guess I, oh, okay. So uh, I think Jim has requested. So Jim, as long as you, um, unmute your mic. Um, we will be able to hear you. Hi, can you hear me? Uh, yes, Hi, you can. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, the, the audio cut out for a second. I, um, is it okay that I ask a quick question here? Oh, please. Okay, please Ed, um, Edward, I want to say that I, I really appreciated um, you, know, you as a resource here. You know, discovering you on, on Twitter has been really um, incredibly helpful. And I'm one of those people that, that doesn't, I'm, I'm pretty much open-minded and and i don't jump to to conclusions and and all that stuff to to judge anything one way or the other i really want to to get as much information as i can and and i and i really try understanding instead of like you know um labeling anybody you know a conspiracy theorist or anti-vaxxer or, or all that i, I want to understand 
you know, the full, the full scope of, of their you know, reasoning. And I happen to have um, a doctor friend who's a very well-respected doctor who, um, in the conversation I've had with him, that he's a very deep researcher. And he was saying that looking at the actual studies with the ivermectin, he's saying that, that there's a narrative that is being um, swayed. And by just, you know, calling it a horse medication and all these other things, that it, it's, it's, it's a disingenuous, um, non-scientific way of talking about something that he actually himself has prescribed it. He has seen it being beneficial. He knows that he's in a rare minority, um, but it, it's, not, it's not like a heated issue with him. Um, but um, in, in the case of myself, that I, I am vaccinated, um, my son who wasn't um, did get COVID and he was prescribing some ivermectin for him. He just said, this will help knock it out faster. And going to the pharmacy with the prescription, they said, we cannot fulfill this because we do not accept diagnoses of, um, you know, of, of uh, COVID-19 for ivermectin. And so he was just sort of throwing up his arms saying, you know, that it's, we're living in a crazy time where as a doctor, I cannot prescribe the medicine that, that my best reasoning has brought me to think that it is beneficial in your son's case. Um, and, and, you know, my son did okay. He came through it. But I just, I was just wondering, I mean, where, where do we find sanity when here's a very credible person who I know is sincere, has done a lot of deep research. There's Eric Weinstein, um, you know, there's other people that are, that are having a different, um, you know, set of, um, statistics. I, I understand there's even countries, I don't know which ones that have approved ivermectin. So you, you've sort of clarified as far as why they've approved it, which I appreciate. Again, that's awesome to have some more information on that. But um, can anyone speak to that as far as, I mean, if there's any chance that it helps even a little bit, why would a doctor himself not be able to pre prescribe it if that's what he's come to his own um, intelligent decision for? I'm Jim, I'm done speaking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 Jim. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, so... I, I guess I'd, I'd want to kick it back to, to Dr. Bahuma and um, Ed just to, I guess, talk through this. Yeah, I can I can try to to answer uh, James' question. Thanks for thanks for the question. I think that um, the main issue that a lot of us kind of on the clinician side, in terms of looking at the data that is available on ivermectin, that I I think Ed summarized earlier is that. A lot of the studies that have been done, and I, I mean clinical studies that have tried to randomize uh, patients into groups that received ivermectin for COVID-19 and groups that did not receive any ivermectin, have really failed to, to be able to demonstrate a clear benefit for this treatment, be it um, in early uh, COVID-19 disease or moderate disease or severe disease. And these are normally the parameters by which we go, not only to judge COVID therapeutics, but to judge basically any other drug that, that we prescribe. So we look to good, well done randomized control trials. And right now for ivermectin, we just don't have the data that stack up to support that this drug provides benefit against SARS-CoV-2 infection. And for you know, individuals who say that they've had anecdotal experiences where they prescribed it to a patient and they might have felt that the patient improved on that, that is not really randomization. And, you know, no matter how many anecdotes we have about effective ivermectin, we have to test out 
those anecdotes in a randomized controlled trial setting to be able to actually answer the question. Now, what I tell clinicians that still firmly believe that there might be some benefit that other trials may have failed to pick up, I still tell them and remind them of the fact that we still have ongoing randomized controlled trials with ivermectin recruiting in the U.S. So if you have a patient who has COVID and you feel that, you know, they could benefit from the drug, why, why not direct them to an actual clinical trial where, you know, their participation may actually contribute to the knowledge in answering the question definitively? Right here on Twitter, there's um, uh, an ID doc in Minnesota, Dr. Bulwer, who has done uh, lots of the clinical trials um, on hydroxychloroquine here in the U.S. Uh, in the early days of the pandemic. He is actively recruiting participants to his ivermectin study. We would like to get answers. We would like to get answers from good clinical trials, but we need to study them the proper way. And prescribing medications and relying on anecdote is just not the best way to collect good scientific evidence to prove that a medication is beneficial. And that is the reason why that, you know, right now it's just not recommended as an intervention because the data just do not support it. My view as a scientist is that you have to be open to, to, to changing your mind if the, the data then shows down the line that this is actually something that works. But right now, with all the studies that we have, we're just not at that point. And that is why you're seeing that kind of um, uh, 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 skew or sort of resistance favoring not using a drug that we don't have evidence. Oh, Dr. Kahuma cut out. Yeah, okay. I thought that was going to be just me again. Yeah. Oh, um, if I could just add to that really quickly. So, um, firstly, I just want to say I'm really glad that your son is doing okay, Jim. Um, really relieved to hear that. But um, I think it's really important to be mindful that, you know, even physicians, even scientists, they're all humans, and our own observations will bias us a certain way. So, for example, right, let's say, for the, let's say as a thought experiment that your son did end up getting ivermectin. You said that he is fine, right? Would that have been attributed to the fact that he got ivermectin? We have to remember that for COVID-19, most of the cases are mild and most of the patients recover just fine. So if you're just observing it anecdotally, not systematically, you're giving people ivermectin, they get better. It's really hard to see whether or not that's a real effect. And that's why we have clinical trials to help address those questions. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really, really great point. Um, I think the interesting thing about science and the, the rigor of randomized controlled trials is sort of like the, uh, really, it's the application of the marketplace of ideas. Um, and, and usually, uh, if you have an idea and you, you put it up against a randomized controlled trial, um, the truth will typically uh, find its way to the top. So um, I think we're, I'm going to try to wind down this space here. Um, and just to you know, reiterate, um, my name is Chumo Veneme. While I am a physician, I am I'm a fellow in gastroenterology, so I really um, typically don't see patients uh, who have um, COVID-19. So that's why I am the moderator and helping Dr. Uh, Bahuma, who is an ID specialist, and Ed Nirenberg, who uh, runs a site, D-Platform Disease, takes deep dives into immunology, sort of take questions and talk about COVID-19. Um, I don't see any questions sort of pending right now. So I'm just going to give, I guess, my co-hosts maybe just the last word. I don't know if you guys, if there's anything else you guys wanted to mention or hasn't been talked about that, hey, that we could sort of leave uh, the listeners with. 
Clark Van oh, Gibbler here. I did I did have a question <laughs> oh, because the ivermectin thing okay. came up. And okay. you know, okay. with at least with hydroxychloroquine, there was at least a reasonable hope that it would work because in a 2005 paper they found that it worked in varro cells. Of course, it doesn't work in human lung cells, hence why it didn't show up in any random control trial as being effective. Is there anything about ivermectin that has a shred of hope, like at least hydroxychloroquine had something that at least made some sense out of hoping that it would work? Does ivermectin have anything so like I that going for it? <laughs> So um, when, when I looked at hydroxychloroquine, I looked at those in vitro data, I thought it didn't have a shot. And the reason I thought that was because the EC50 for hydroxychloroquine to inhibit viral replication was like still in the micromolar range, which is just too high. Like if you actually crunch the numbers factoring in the volume of distribution of the drug, you'd have to give someone like four grams of hydroxychloroquine for it to have a viable antiviral effect based on that. Even if you disregard that, like the virus enters through a totally different pathway that the hydroxychloroquine targets. Um, so I didn't think that hydroxychloroquine really had any potential, um, at least as an antiviral. It maybe might have had some as an immunomodulator to help like control severe inflammation, but I never thought hydroxychloroquine would work. And then a bunch of studies showed that it didn't, which is a shame because you know it would be nice to have drugs that work. Um, with ivermectin, though, it really I, I can't quite clearly see what the basis is in there was like a review published in one of the nature journals that gave like 30 possible mechanisms of action and then when you look closely almost all of them are based on in silico data and in vitro data and it just none of them really make any sense like it claimed like that ivermectin blocks the interaction with um ace2 and the spike protein and it did it showed that with a computer simulation it didn't show that with any actual data that shows that ivermectin binds and blocks that interaction it like it made a bunch of claims it also claimed that ivermectin is an ionophore and it's going to shuttle the zinc ions across the cell membrane again just it, it wasn't even a computer simulation at that point it just showed that the structure of ivermectin could bind a zinc ion and like like it was just ridiculous like people are really desperate and we all want something that works and i get it but this is just not how to do it we should be demanding rigorous and careful studies of these things we should not be throwing any mechanism of action at the wall hoping that something sticks we should be focusing not even on mechanism of action we should be focusing on the clinical data does this actually show a benefit is there good reason to think that it could show a benefit so that we can justify a clinical trial with it that's excellent okay um so i I think just to be respectful of everyone's time, um, I'm, I'm probably going to, you know, end the space. Um, but I just want to say, first of all, um, thank you to Dr. Bahuma and Ed Nirenberg, who have been incredibly gracious with their time and have really given awesome responses to some really difficult questions. So I just want to say thank you to you, too. You don't say thank you back. It's no big deal. Okay. Um, so then, Sorry, I was so, muted. I meant to say thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just want to say thank you guys for your attention and asking really, really great questions. Um, I, the last link that I put up here was um, it's a really nice thread by, I'm going to put your name, but I think it's Mute Civic, um, who really talks really in depth about, um, you know, vaccine effectiveness and how it's sort of changed throughout you know, the lifespan of COVID-19 and how it, how it will continue to change as we have, have more um, variants. So I would encourage everyone to, to peel through that thread just to, to sort of get your COVID-19 weight up. Um, and I just want to say thank you for 
I don't know, hanging out with us and having this piano music in the background. I hope to have more moderated sessions like this in the future. If you liked it, please, you know, retweet about the space and follow these two amazing co-hosts. Thank you guys for your time. Thank you. See you guys. Yeah.